I am humbled to be able to come and speak to you on a communion service. Um, and indeed, it is uh, awesome to be able to look out and see the mountains and the water, what surrounds us here. I realize that in a gathering such as this, there are many traditions about communion. In my own lifetime, I have gone through the churches that did it quarterly, then we did it monthly, then it was bi-weekly, morning, then the evening. And since seminary, I have been part in our Presbyterian tradition of celebrating communion every week. Now, people question, does it become familiar? Does it become too often? And I think that can happen to any of us. It is a prayerful mentality as we come and prepare our hearts to come to communion that gets us ready to hear the words that are said and which is what guided my picking the passage that in this that that whenever we do this we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again it's about that great story arc from the cross till his second coming And that proclamation of the gospel in that period of waiting, of knowing that someday he's going to come back just as we know that in the past he really did die on the cross and was resurrected and ascended. But yet communion is something that over the years within the post-Reformation world has divided us, has changed we have our traditions. Um, I noticed the, the different trays, which are very new to me, but I looked them up on Amazon, and I know how much they cost, and all of that kind of thing, because you know you could, I think you can find almost anything on Amazon, but they had that. And then they, you could buy a little tube of the thousand cups of, that fit in there. Now, Because I lived in Ohio when I found this out, the state of Ohio, some of you were old enough to have been in churches that had little glass cups. <coughs> Do you realize that those were invented and patented in Lima, Ohio, which is up by the Erie, I mean, up by the, um, the Great Lakes? They figured out how to make this product, but there wasn't a market for it. Nobody used little cups to celebrate communion. Everybody used what they called common cups. Now they came, the common cups came in different shapes and sizes, but they were passed from person to person. Do you know what the initial selling point of little cups was? Something that as we look back, we realize in some ways how it preyed upon the weaker parts of who we were at that time. They're clean, they're safe, they'll protect you from your neighbor. (laughs) For hundreds of years, we have been passing the cup between free people and slave people, from people from different places, We had done that for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden, because what you you may not understand is there was beginning to be an anti-immigrant feeling in the country, and 
After all, it was the Catholics who used common cups and used alcohol, and we can't be like them. And so they were beginning to sell these little cups. Now, I don't know what happened here in 1918. But in 1918, two things happened that changed the Protestant church in the United States forever in terms of little communion cups. We had that Spanish flu epidemic that killed thousands of people. We also had prohibition, which meant you couldn't use alcohol. Now, you could get a waiver, like the Catholics and the Episcopalians did, to use wine in their communion services. Those little cups began to be used <laughs> since 1905, and then somebody figured out how to make them in glass instead of that so you wouldn't have to wash them. We had a couple in my first church who, that was their ministry because there was a three-step process of boiling the glass cups in bleach water, then in soapy water, and then in clear water to make sure they were perfectly clean. And so as we think about all the differences that are there, hopefully one of the things that will unite us is our understanding about what it means to proclaim his death until he comes again. Jesus, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is one of the purposes of celebrating the Lord's Supper is to publicly proclaim through the meal that he gave us that he died on the cross for our sins. We proclaim that. We shout it out to the world. We say that is why we do this, is because he died for us. Now, in this passage that we're looking at in, in Romans chapter 5, from 6 down to 11, there are what I refer to as the depths of division, the separation without the cross. What we were like before God's grace. In verse 6, he uses the word weak and ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners. And then he really amps it up, I believe, in verse 10, he says, while we were enemies. It humbles us because it reminds us that it's only by grace that we are no longer God's enemies. That we are no longer viewed as sinners even though we sin. We are not ungodly. That is behind us because by faith we trust in the death of Jesus Christ. And we have to realize that there are people in, in the world that, that still need the gospel. That still would be described by these words in these verses. That divide them from God, from his grace. Because where this little passage goes is away from division to reconciliation in verse 11. And we're going to look at that at the end of the sermon. But the depths of this love, you know, we talked about the depths of division, but the depths of God's love for us 
that's expressed in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That simple little declaration of what we have come to call the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But think about that. Think about how profound and humbling that is of his grace, his love, that he reaches out to us while we were still enemies. As Christians who have read his word and understand things, can can you imagine what it means to say, God, I am your enemy, save me? I'm against everything you you say that is true, save me? See, when we use a word like ungodly, that kind of just flies over our head because if you're not a Christian, you have no idea who God is. So to be ungodly doesn't make a lot to you. But, but hearing that word enemy, it's an expression of being a sinner, but it is a word that grabs hold of us because it is a word that comes out of our experience in our lifetime. But it tells us how deep the love of God was. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, but if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Do you hear how in discussing the the differences in the way he shows the benefits, the results of the death of Christ. That here he uses enemies, and it leads his death leads to reconciliation. Let me read verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciliation is one of those words that describes his death, just like when we use the word um, redemption. Redemption is a marketplace word to describe what happened on the cross. We were bought back. Redeemed is another one of those words. Atonement, propitiation are temple words that describe turning away the wrath of God, putting the blood on top of the altar, or the, the, the center of the altar. But now they're reconciled. This is a meal of reconciliation. If you believe that you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, this is a meal then that we need to come to to strengthen our faith, to encourage us. To remind us that he died for us. To proclaim his death to our neighbors, to our communities. Verse 9 gets kind of graphic because we, we don't talk like this. And often I wondered as I was reading this, when the Romans, and this was written to Roman Christians. Think about how a lot of this language, if they didn't have a Jewish background, would have sounded very different to them from their normal religious ceremonies and their way of thinking about 
if you sacrificed an animal, you could pay for your sins. I can't sacrifice anything to pay for my sins. I know that because Christ died for my sins. Verse 9 says, says, Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Justified by his blood. That's not language we use every day. We have a hard time talking about death. But yet we are told in this passage again and again and again and again that he died for us. That he shed his blood for us. That very graphic scene of Christ on the cross and the centurion's spear going into his side so his body fluids can drain out so we know he's dead. See, there's some parents who try to figure out how do we water down the gospel so we don't scare kids? How do we read certain passages about the death of Christ, about his crucifixion, without exposing them to things that we're afraid of? But we need to remember, this is the way God wrote it down. This is the way God gave it to us so that we would know that. One of the things this passage teaches us again and again is his death was a substitution. He died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for the sins of his people. He died once, the book of Hebrews reminds us. But he was a substitute. Now we can think of all kinds of examples of substitutes. Um... In some recipes people have, they say, oh, I substitute this for that because I think it makes it special. They take one thing and change it for another. In sporting events, somebody gets hurt, you substitute a player that's not hurt. Someone takes their place. One of the things that I think is, it's probably very American, I guess, because I don't, I don't know if you would do it. But there are ways that somebody can stand in for someone in a marriage ceremony. They can be the substitute. Because in the military, I'm not picking on the state of Texas, I just know it's legal in the state of Texas to have what I call a telephone marriage ceremony. And, I mean, you have to have all these written permissions and things like that, but you can have a substitute groom or bride in Germany where the pastor is doing the ceremony But all the legal material is happening in Texas, not in Germany. But you can only do that in a U.S. military base. You can't do that in Germany itself. You can't create that substitution. But Christ on the cross, proclaiming his death, that is part of what this meal is all about when we pick up the cup of the covenant that was shed for our sins, for the forgiveness. And we need to remember that it's a substitution, but it's a sacrifice. All of those sacrifices, all of those animals, all of those breads, I guess is what I want to call them, that they used to make and sacrifice and burn, 
all of those sacrifices that were consumed by fire on that altar that God had told them how to create, all were but a shadow of what was really happening on the cross. That our sins needed to be paid for with a sacrifice. There wasn't anything that I could do. I needed a substitute to be a sacrifice. I can't go out and do something. Now, I'm not picking on Egypt, but I want to tell a story about when I was in Egypt, we, I went to, um, they have this pharaonic park, which is kind of like, I want to say a, their version of Williamsburg, but that doesn't mean anything to you. It's, it's, it would be, you know, basically what it is, it's a 2000 BC theme park. And part of it is what they call the feather of truth. Because when someone dies and they go into the afterlife, they take their heart out. I mean, they're already dead, so it can't hurt them, right? They take their heart out, and they put it on a scale. And they take the feather of truth, and they put it on the other side of the scale. If the heart stays down, the person stays down. But if the feather of truth goes down and the heart comes up, they go up. It is a works performance based system. <clears throat> Christianity is not a works based performance based system. It is a sacrificial system by one sacrifice that we proclaim his death until he comes again. Let me wrap up with verse 11. Because he's been talking about all of this death and substitution. And he does that because he wants us to know that when we come to his table, it's his worth that brings us there, not ours. I can never earn my way into this table. It's only because of Christ. And so in verse 11, when it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. These are real results. We have received reconciliation. This table is a meal of reconciliation. Remember all those sacrificial meals in the Old Testament where you'd have the family on one side, you have the priests on the other side eating the food to, to, to illustrate in a very graphic way that they were reconciled to God? This table is a table of reconciliation. Notice what it says. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not waiting, we're not earning we are reconciled. Another part of the passage talks about being justified. But this talks about being reconciled. Reconciled is one of those words that comes out of a family, that family members need to be reconciled, need to be brought back together. And I want us to end by thinking about we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have that joy, you can have that time of rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ's ministry was to bring us to the Father through the Holy Spirit. We have that joy in reconciliation with him, the text says, because he died for us. And we can rejoice. So not only is this a, a table of reconciliation, but it is a table of joy. 
because we have been reconciled, because we proclaim his death, because it has been accomplished, something we could never do, something we should never try to do. We come in joy because we are reconciled, because we have been justified by his blood. I want us to come to the table. And I know everybody has different kinds of feelings and things like that, but I want what brings you joy to be the echoes of the word of God, that that is what brings you both the assurance that you are justified and reconciled, and then the sureness that I can come and partake of this because Christ has died for my sins. And we proclaim that until he comes again. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that we are able to come to the table because of what Christ has done. We thank you, Father, that we can come from different churches tonight and commune with you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given us. We pray that we might leave here filled with the joy because we are reconciled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.